two. As we are going through the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in Revelation chapter two, verse twelve. And here's where we are, the third church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, Kings says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know that you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But, but, I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those, as he's writing to the messenger, speaking of the people in his fellowship, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them. That would be those holding the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, those who are committing sexual immorality. Repent, or I'll come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And Father, this morning, Lord, as we go through your word, would you bring it alive? Lord, would you speak to us? Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. And Lord, would you bless our time here, in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this section of Scripture, word for word, like we have in the previous two churches, it emphasizes who Jesus Christ is, what he knows, what he commands, and what he promises as you obey that command. So from start to finish, it's all Jesus, church. It has to be. But what happens when that is no longer the case? When it's no longer all Jesus? Oh, yes, we believe in Jesus. But, you know, some of those things are just a little old-fashioned. And so we allow ourselves or we allow this ungodly behavior to be joined to us. Well, this church or church age, as we look at church history, is known as the compromising era. Remember last week as we looked at the church in Smyrna, historically it was known as the persecuted church. That period of church history was also known as the age of persecution where some six million Christians were put to death with the devil leading the charge, trying to destroy it from the outside. And remember what happened? The more they tried to destroy Christianity, the stronger the believers came. So the devil needs a new tactic. He was trying to kill it from the outside. So he needs a new tactic. Seeing that he couldn't destroy God's church from the outside, he comes up 
with a new tactic and seeks to destroy it on the inside by joining it. And that's exactly what he did. You go look at history. Rome decided to move from persecuting the church to protecting the church. And all of a sudden, they were making the Christian church the official religion of the day. I mean, and, and be a Christian there. All of a sudden, you know, the, your friends are getting killed today, and then tomorrow, oh, hey, you're the official church. We're no longer going to kill you. I mean, I would imagine the Christians were stoked. Yes, okay, it's about time. Thank you, Jesus. However, what happens when you join yourself to government programs? Well, today, if you join yourself to the government program, you have to take the government curriculum if you want the grant. And I'd imagine back then, if you here, we're going to protect you, but then you have to take our ways. And of course, that's what happened. So as Rome decides to grant the church peace and the church accepted it, in time, the government weakened the church. Thus, we see that the devil brought into the church messages like, be tolerant, be acceptance. After all, we're all of, this, we're all of faith. So let's just Embrace one another and sing Kumbaya. And they went after it and they bought into it. Sounds familiar? It should. What was once a great nation founded upon God's ways with a godly foundation has over time compromised that foundation and allowed God to be pushed out of the public arena. And that's not the government's fault. Oh, yeah, but pastor in the Supreme Court case in 62, it was, it's not the government's fault. It's us. That's on us. When the church fails to preach the gospel, how can we not expect ungodly men and women to act ungodly? So we can look at 62 and say, man, that's when God got kicked out of everything. Yeah, because we let him. We weren't praying. We weren't preaching the gospel. And so what, what has filled those places now that God got kicked out? Well, psychology now comes in and deals with life's issues because, you know, the church can't really deal with it. Sports and clubs and social events and schools fills that hole. And then we live in this day and age today where doctors are just trying to make everyone feel good. Hmm. Entertainment and social media are in our homes everywhere. And we're inundated with stuff. Noah Webster, you know the guy that wrote the dictionary? Here's what he says. The religion which has introduced civil liberty is the religion of Christ and his apostles. To this we owe our free constitution of government. He also said, the moral principles and precepts contained in the scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitution and laws. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from, them, from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. And that's where we started as a nation. Abraham Lincoln, number 16. A man that a lot of people like to quote today. But you know what? I'll bet you've never heard this one. Abe, speaking about the Bible, said this. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated through this book, 
but for the book we could not know right from wrong. Did you hear, did you hear that? From this book, Abe is saying, from this book we could not know right from wrong. All the things desirable to man are contained in it. And let's face it, if the enemy can get the church from preaching the Bible, from reading the Bible, from talking about the Bible, where do we decide what's right or wrong? Based upon our own feelings? Calvin Coolidge, number 30, he declared this, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Wow. Their season team as the church today compromises the truth like crazy in so many ways. And that's exactly what our 30th president declared would happen. Not only is the government, it's also the church. Because see, what happens in the church is how the government goes. Please understand that. You know, we stand back and we look, oh, look at that. Look what they're doing. No, that's on us. That's on us. We, the church has to understand this. The government will never legislate morality. No, the church is to be moral. And the church is to stand up for truth. The church is to preach the gospel so that ungodly man will get saved. The church is to pray like never before. Right now, we're, we're all reaping what others had sown. And today, years later, they will reap what we sowed. No, they will, yeah, they will reap what we sowed. We got to understand that. See, we can't look at the injustices and all this craziness in the world and point at it unless we're pointing back at it with four fingers. That would be three fingers and my thumb. You know, people say, hey, you know, if you're pointing one finger at somebody, you got three more. No, we got the thumb coming back at us. Okay, we got to understand that. As the church goes, so goes the country. It's proven historically. Go back and look at church history. Rome corrupted from the inside as, as it just literally fell apart. It's crazy. See, the problem with the church in America and this church in Pergamos is we have compromised the what? The truth. And what happens when you compromise the truth? When the truth of God's word is no longer the one and only absolute? Well, truth is just whatever you think it should be. You know, just, just relax a little bit. Man, that was so long ago. God is a God of love. Oh, boy. How does Jesus view that type of thinking or living in, the, in his church? Well, I'm not 100% certain, but I can tell you this. He wrote a letter to him. I don't think he was real stoked. So if you're living in a state of compromise today, then please tune in. Jesus wants to work in you this morning so he can work through you today because he wants to. It's critical. Verse 1, and to the angel, that's who this letter is written to, or the messenger, or the pastor of the church of Pergamos, write. Pergamos was a very luxurious city. It was filled with temples to pagan gods of which involved all types of sexual activity of some sort. So Jesus comes to them because these pagan practices have been creeping into the church and he says to them, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what would you do if someone came to you with a two-edged sword in their mouth? Um, run, 
<laughs> Listening would be the sharp thing to do. The Greek word for Pergamos means height or elevation. And what they had done is that they had elevated themselves, some of them had elevated themselves above God's word. And truth all of a sudden became open to everyone's interpretation. We read that they were tolerating religious ideas and they were allowing immoral practices into the church. Something God's word specifically is very clear about. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Marriage, business partnership. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Is the, and the answer is, they have nothing. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So the Bible's pretty clear, is it not? But the church in Pergamos, like too many in the church today, they disregard that truth. And thus sin is brought into the church, weakening the straight, forward truths contained in God's word. And once that foundation is weakened, collapse is imminent. So what are we to do here? Well, as we view this next period of church history, it was definitely safer physically from Rome but spiritually, it was dangerous, like doubly dangerous. Historically, this era of compromise was around 300-something. The last of the Roman emperors had been, who had died, those who were persecuting the church, that's fact. According to history, Constantine is on the throne, and his, his thing is, if we can't beat him, then let's join him. That's the philosophy of his day. And he was a political figure that compromised with the pagans' priests and the traditions which permeated Rome, and he joined them with the, with the Christian church. His idea was, let's just find some common ground among the religions. So an ungodly marriage took place, and from 313 to around 680, the church and state worked together as a political power, and as a result, the church began a downward spiral for which it has yet to recover because... They compromised. They failed to heed God's word. But that's the historical account. Remember, this is also a real church that Jesus is writing to around 96 AD. And before we move on, I want you to take notice of one thing here. Please take notice that Jesus has this sword. And we know what the sword is a reference to, right? It's the word of God. Like we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. Now, this passage in Hebrews 4 uses the word, and I can't pronounce it, but I'll make a feeble attempt. The, the word for sword in Hebrews chapter 4, the Greek word is makahira. It's defined as a large knife or a small sword that's used in butchering am animals. We might say if it's, it's a knife that a surgeon would use in, in seeking to bring healing to a person in need of surgery or a knife that would be used to, to cut out the cancer or something that is growing on a person. And so it's a good knife. Now I say all this because that's not the same sword that we see in Revelation chapter 2. Hebrews 4, it's this very fine small knife for 
for surgical or for skinning an animal. But in Revelation chapter 2, the sword before us today is called harom faya. So totally different from the sword in Hebrews. The sword described in Revelation 2 is a broad sword, some three foot long. I mean, could you imagine someone showing up to do surgery on you and go, hey, let me show you the sword I'm going to use. And they held out their three foot sword. Man, I'd be jumping off that gurney faster than anything. So why does Jesus show up with this big sword and not this small tactical one? Well, if you fast forward to the end of this letter in Revelation 19.15, we get to see this description of Jesus again just before the great battle of Armageddon, and this is what it says. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And if you skip down to verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the, on the throne. So the large, broad sword that Jesus is packing on Judgment Day is the same sword that he is speaking to these in Pergamos with, okay? We understand that? It's not the small one. So what does this sword type tell us about Jesus' view of this church? It tells me that Jesus is not into them adding pagan ways into his church. It's really easy to do today. Hey, well, we don't really need the Holy Spirit. Let's just get a marketing director. And I'm not, I don't want to bag on the church today, but it's really easy to do to add in pagan ways that are typical business practices, but typical business, business practices have no place in a life driven by the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at the early church when Ananias and Sapphira, remember they sought to compromise. We all know what happened to them. So compromise is not a place you and I want to be found today. There's too much at stake. And you might be thinking that you're hiding it like these in Pergamos might have thought, but it's faulty thinking according to verse 13 because Jesus says, I know your works. Jesus knows all of our works today just like he knew theirs. And he also says, I know, you, I know where you dwell. I know your address. I know. And I'm stoked about that. I'm glad he knows where I live. Look where their home was, where Satan's throne is. Seems like Satan had a special seat in Pergamos. You know, certainly Satan's throne is not hell. He'll eventually be housed in the lake of fire. But today his home is, well, it, the Bible says he roams the earth, looking, roaming back and forth, looking for those whom he can devour. So I'm thankful God knows where I dwell. The city of Pergamos was a city filled with sensuous worship of pagan deities. That should sound familiar to us today. You could not then and you cannot today wake up any day, any time in our day in this country today and not be bombarded with sensuous things. They're everywhere. And so we've got to constantly be praying today, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lord, deliver me from the evil that's out there that's trying to take me down. We've got to be praying that. See, God knows where we dwell, just like he knew where the Christians of Pergamos dwell. That's why we need to be those who walk in the Spirit. It's so important. So in addition to dwelling where Satan had a throne and not throwing in the towel, here's the rest of the good things that were happening in this compromising church as Jesus compliments them. You hold fast to my name. I know that. Jesus says, hey, look, you didn't deny my faith. The word... Hold means strength or to retain or to seize. 
They were holding on to the name of Jesus with all they had. And, and they rightly so, for the word declares that there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And he says, hey, you didn't deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And who is Antipas? Well, we don't really know. Some would say he is a leader, but Jesus says he was a faithful martyr. Not a bad title to have these days. According to church history, he was thrown onto a heated brazen bull which stood at the temple of Diana, and he is roasted alive because he would not renounce his faith. Jesus says, you guys are holding fast to, my, to your belief in Christ, even in dangerous times. Yes, the world was hammering them and permeating the church, but they were still holding on to that. They were not allowing the world's influence to dictate their lives. Might we all be found that way? Okay, th these are the good things. They, they were holding on. They were holding firm. Men and women who are not willing to go with the flow, not willing to deny our Jesus as the only way. Even if it places the minority today and it costs us our lives. And so we want to be found being a faithful Antipas. But that's the good. But then here's the bad. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. If you look back at the church in Ephesus, Jesus only had one thing against them. Here he says, I have a few things against you. And can I encourage us today that we don't want Jesus holding a few things over us. Ask for the forgiveness. Change the direction. Receive it. But none of us should have Jesus holding things over us. But he says, I have a few things against you, church leader, because you have there those. Now, I think this is important. Because he's writing, I believe, to the messenger of the church. But I have a few things against you, singular, because you have there those more than one. See, the leader has to deal with it and instruct people to deal with these things that have crept into the church. And if the leaders aren't instructing the people by teaching the Word of God and how to deal with these things when they creep into the church, they creep into the church and we kind of sit by them. And we kind of feel uncomfortable, but we don't really know how to deal with it. And so he says here, because you, leader, have there those. In other words, leader, you got to deal with this stuff. You have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So what's the doctrine of Balaam, you remember? Balaam's counsel to Balak was, God won't allow me to curse them. So Balak, why don't you just go join them? Just like Constantine did years later. Remember what Balaam told Balak to do? He said, look, take some of your sweet young things and put them just outside the Israeli camp and then have them yell over to the Israeli boys, hey boys, why don't you come on over here and we'll show you how we worship our God, which of course, so much of it involved sex. You see, Balaam couldn't do anything to the children of Israel while they were under God's covering. But he told Balak, hey, Balak, if you call him outside of that covering, God will be able to take him out. And that's exactly what he did. 
It was entirely sex outside of marriage, unequally yoked to the max, and the Lord God brought a plague, and 26,000 male Jews died that day. Numbers 31, you'll find the story. There was some in the church in Pergamos who obviously said, we could be sexually immoral all the time. At least that's what the culture was saying. Have sex and be happy was their mantra. After all, everyone's doing it, and that's where they were wrong. Not everyone was engaging in sex outside of marriage. Jesus said to the messenger in charge, you have their those, not all. And I've heard all the excuses today. Hey, listen, that's not sex outside of marriage, man. We love one another. It's okay. We've made this covenant to God, so it's good. We're going to get married someday anyway. You know, we've got to live together because we can't afford living separately and then the most, I think, the most damning excuse is, look at this passage in the Bible. It allows it. Really? Well, let me show you 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, this is the will of God. You abstain from it. It's crazy times then. It is crazy times now. Because when the church people say, look, it's okay, we're in trouble. This word stumbling block in verse 14 is the Greek word scandalon. Obviously, we get our English word scandal from. So what does this teach us? Listen to this Bible dictionary definition about scandalin. It says this, it's the trigger of a trap on which the bait is placed, and when touched by the animal, it springs and causes it to close, causing entrapment. That's scandalin. That's that's what's happening here. They put this scandalin before us. You know, I have these traps in my yard. I want to catch whatever goes in there. Yeah, I put the little bait just on the other side, and when they step on the trigger, boom, the door closes. I've got them. So what does that teach us? Teaches us we got to be on the lookout. I hope we all know this, that there are presently people in the church today that are putting scandalins, a.k.a. stumbling blocks in people's path to fulfill their own fleshly desires. They really have no problem in taking other believers down and out. They only come to church looking to satisfy their own ungodly deeds of their flesh. And it's in the church today. I remember I was 19 years old. We're sitting at Doug Knight's house getting wasted. He wasn't there. He comes walking in and goes, hey, guess what? I found a great place to pick up chicks. Really? Where? At the church. Are you crazy? It happens then. That was in 1980. Still happens today. Satan knows if he can't beat you or curse you, he's looking for other ways to destroy your fellowship with God, and sexual immorality will destroy it quicker than anything else. It's critical. Nine times out of ten, the scandals in the church are sexual scandals. Now, before we move on, What are we to do when we come across such people in the church today that are calling themselves believers and they are living in sexual immorality? What are we to do? Because we we actually, I'm sure in in, in this room today that there's a lot of people that know people who are living, calling themselves Christian who are living in sexual immorality. What are we to do about that? Okay, first off, there is a huge difference between someone who let their guard down and failed and is broken, and they've repented and rent the other way. I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about someone who's living in it because that's what the Bible's talking about here. Someone who's living in it. It's, 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 it's their thing. Day after day after day after day. I know we have to do something because Jesus is addressing it and pointing it out in verse 14. Well, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 is one point of action. Let me read it to you. Brethren, if a man is overtaken or a woman is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a, per, such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Go to them the way you would want someone to come to you. But don't do nothing, church. That's why Jesus is writing a letter to them. They, the leader wasn't doing anything. He's telling them, you have there those who are living this way. So we got to do something. 1 Corinthians 5 is another place, and, and my, this may sound a little harsh to you, but listen. If you go read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it says to cast out the so-called brother or sister that's living a lifestyle of sexual immorality that their flesh might be destroyed. You know, that they might come to an end of themselves. Because let's face it, Christian fellowship is Christian fellowship and you can't find it any place else in the world. But see, people that are living in sexual immorality and people that are tied into you, they got the best of both worlds. They get to live in their flesh and then they still know they got someone that loves them. No, 1 Corinthians 5 says, no, cut that off. Let them be over here all by themselves till they come to their senses and then they go, this isn't worth it and they come back where they need to be. It works. We've seen it work in the church today because that's God's word. Again, not someone who blew it. No, this is someone who is living that way. We really clear on this? Big difference. The other item that Jesus has against them is in verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Which thing I hate. And the Nicolaitans was that establishing of a hierarchy where a man would come between you and God instead of you going to Jesus directly. Jesus says, I hate that. You know, the wall was broken. The, the veil in the temple was torn down so that you and I could have access to God and not have to go through some priest. Well, the, Nicolae, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, they kind of resurrect that thing and say, look, you need to go through us and we'll tell you what to do. Let me just say this. Don't ever call me for direction. You can call me for directions all the time. Hey, I'm lost. How do I get there? I'll tell you. But please don't call me and say, look, I don't know what to do. Well, good, go to Jesus, he'll tell you. I, I don't know, I have a hard enough time trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Jesus says here, he hates it, when mankind today stands in that place of a priest and represents themselves to the man instead of that man going directly to Jesus himself. You know, there are some in the church today that tell you you can't go to a doctor. That if you go, it's lack of faith. Well, you know what? If I wouldn't have went, I'd be blind. I guess it's lack of faith on my part. But see, that, that's the hierarchy. But doesn't Jesus say something about a doctor? Yeah, he says this. It's the sick that need the doctor. Wow, he kind of validates a doctor. Plus, we read in the Bible that Luke is the beloved physician, not the cursed one. So you, you listen to these things saying in the church, you go, no, 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 but the Bible says, and now we have a contradiction, or their saying is wrong. 
There's others in the church today that want to govern over the lives of people saying, no alcohol, no dancing, no smoking, no hats, none of this. Wear those long dresses, no makeup. Seriously? Others say, if you don't tithe, you're not going to heaven. I've heard that since I've been out here. Others say, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. I've heard that since I've been out here. See, man is using made-up truth today to control people like the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was. And Jesus is on record today declaring what? He hates it. He hates it. So this church has some good. They're to hold on to that. But this church also has some bad. And so what is the simple action from Jesus for these in Pergamos to, to, to do to get rid of the bad? First word, six letters, verse 16, repent. See, I think so often we get used to our thing and we just keep going this way. Well, you know, I'm just this. I'm just the way. This is just my way. No, Jesus says repent. And we may have to repent over the same thing 25 times. But repent is a good word. Repent means go the other way. Do the right thing. Repent or take on the God man with the sword in his mouth. I don't think that's too... Well, you know what? I don't know, pastor. Uh, No, that's a no-brainer here. Repent or take on the God-man. Repent seems like the logical action, does it not? Sword or repent. Repent or large sword. Boy, I get a little confused here over which one I should do. No, this is a no-brainer. God's heart is that we all would repent when we find ourselves somewhere where we go, how did I get here? God allows the repent. How do I know that? Look at King David. God allows the U-turn. God allows the second chances. Lots of them to look at in the Old Testament. Look at Judah. Twelve tribes came from. Or Israel, where the two, yeah, no, Israel. Jacob. One of those two. Israel, Jacob. Judah. Hmm. I'm a little confused right now. But I'm pretty sure you'll all figure it out. (laughs) I like the fact that even though they have two strikes against them, they're not out. Jesus is still working here. He wants to work with them. Repent tells me that the heart of God does not write people off who fail. And I realize parts of the church today might think repent's a dirty word or they just don't use the word. But That's not true. Those those are lies. Repent is a good word from heaven. And you and I, we need to embrace it and put it into practice every day. Repent is God's word. You know, you're going some, whoa, you ask for forgiveness, you turn and go the other way. It's, It's part of our walk with Christ. Repent or else. It's in the imperative mood, so it's a command. It's present tense. Repent or else. And watch how it words, how it's worded here. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them. Not all of them. He's only addressing them. And them are those who are living in sexual immorality. Them are those who are acting as a priest to the people. So one more time. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, that doesn't excite me at all. Jesus is coming with this big, large judgment sword because I wasn't willing to act here. Nothing good here. For the record, this is not just the job of pastors and elders, but this is 
all of our jobs. This is for everyone who loves Jesus in this place. Because if you know someone who's living in compromise, spiritually, they're in the corner with their arm cut off and they need emergency first aid. And you and I have it. And we got to go to them. If we care about them, we're going to go to them. Yeah, you know what? They might get mad at you in the beginning, but if they're a true believer, they're going to come around and say thank you in the end. Got to go. Go to them. Show them this passage. You know, and they go, okay, wow. They go, well, you know, hey, listen, don't judge me. Well, then show them the other part or else. You'll find yourself fighting against the one who has the large sword. You know, Jude says, he writes, on some say with compassion and others with fear. You know, the compassion is, hey, you know, look, 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 this is what Jesus is calling you to do. He, he wants you to change. He wants you to turn. You know, he loves you. Okay. And if they blow you off, just say, well, look, 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 look what it says here. The believers in Pergamos had a good confession of faith. They showed loyalty to Jesus Christ, but their association with sexual immorality, the church was starting to lose its impact in the world. It's happening today. See, that's why this church is often refers, referred to as the compromising church. It's, it's happening today. And sadly, I report, if you go there today, nothing there but a few ruins. It's our turn now. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's important that we hear today, team. And we got to hear what, what God's Word says. And if we need to change, we need to do it. To him who overcomes, and we want to be found to be overcomers here. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So what is this hidden manna? I don't know. A lot of people write, it's this or it's that. I don't really know. But I know this. If Jesus is offering, I'm going to eat it. And if he hands me a cup when we get to heaven, I'm going to drink it. I'm not a little kid like, you know, it's like, what is this, mom? You know, reading the lunch meat labels. Not when I'm in heaven. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it down. We know God's manna caused the Israelites to be sustained 40 years as they're in the wilderness. And this hidden manna is yours for all of eternity if you're an overcomer. And I will give him a white stone if you're an overcomer. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except that person who receives it. Again, what is this? I don't know. A lot of people think they know, but I don't know how they can know when Jesus doesn't really tell us anywhere. But I can guarantee you this. It's not a pet rock with some paint on it and a couple eyes. Okay? I can guarantee you that. It's this white stone. Has, uh, th this I know for certain. Anything that Jesus is making available for me when I get to heaven, I want it. Amen? I mean, we, we should all want all it. Yeah, Lord, give me, I want the crown. I want to be able to underhand it and overhand it and, you know, flick it, you know, whatever. But you got to be an overcomer. You got to be, an, I mean, that's what he says. You got to be an overcomer. The message to this church is the same to each one of us in every day. When we sin, we need to confess our sin to God and change direction and go the right way so we're not carried down the river of compromise like this church was. You see, God's truth will always destroy the compromising positions and promises that the world makes to you and me. And yeah, it might be a little scary stepping away from those areas of life where you've compromised in the past, but Jesus promises here in this passage to be the nourishment for you if you will but take a step of faith and walk away from that sin. So what are you waiting for?
Make the decision to turn away from your sin right now if you're not already. You gotta make the, you gotta turn. You gotta be in over. You don't wanna find Jesus fighting with you with a sword in his mouth. Team, we gotta stay true to Jesus in these last days because he stayed true to us. Father, we're so thankful for all that you wanna do in our lives. 